You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, great to see you today. Hope you're doing well. Happy 4th of July weekend, the whole thing. And so uh, if you want to go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll also need to get you to put a finger in Nehemiah chapter 9. So 1 Corinthians 11, and make sure you've got something to mark, Nehemiah chapter 9, that will get you off and running. Um, and just real quick, I, I, for the last five weeks, I've only preached once. And so I wanted just to, to come before you and say thank you for giving me some time off. Laura and I are officially adjusting to uh, life with three kids. Still adjusting, it's a key word, the life with three kids. And so, uh, yeah, so it's been great, but I wanted to say thanks for that. And with that, I wanted to come on the back end of that and um, make sure that, that we all think in a similar way when it comes to... Um, how much or how little I preach. And so I, I wanted to make sure that you, you know how I think about that. And I hope I convince you to think in a similar way. But I, when, when, as far as me not preaching, I think that's a good thing for me and a good thing for you. So I hope you carry that same sort of an assumption. I, 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 and I'll just take for, for me first. I want to be your pastor for 40 or 50 years. And I know that to do that, that means I've got to work at a sustainable pace. And so sometimes that means that I need seasons off of preaching I, on this stage or on some stage for you um, on a Sunday morning so I can work on me, not just on us. And so um, it's very healthy for me. But I also think it's very helpful for you um, that at the end of the day, it's good for you to hear other voices open up God's gold mind of a scripture, to be able to, to lift a meaning out of a text and to be able to explain that meaning and apply it to your heart. I think it's essential for you to hear other voices do that. And at the same time, it's good for us corporately because this is how we get to grow people in that gift that God's given them and one day send them out to, to preach and pastor other places. So it's a win for everyone involved. So I don't want to make sure you see it that way. When, when you um, have, when you come in on a Sunday morning and somebody else is preaching, that that's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for me. It's a good thing for all of us involved. And so with that said, I wanted to, to publicly thank Dan again for preaching over the last couple of weeks. I know that's a lot of hard work um, to do that. And that's out, a lot of hours out of his normal routine that he's adding on to a typical week schedule. And so wherever Dan is, I, yeah, Dan, right there. Thanks for the last couple of weeks. You did a great job for sure. Okay. Um, first Corinthians chapter 11, we're talking some communion today. And so now when we, when we do communion, I, I think our typical kind of flow here is every five to six weeks, uh, maybe seven or eight doing it at the end of a service. Um, but I think it's essential for us at times to pull back and to make sure we've got a good glimpse of what, what we're doing when we do this, like what, what this table means, what these bread and what this juice means and, and how as a corporate body, how this affects us in the midst of all that. So I want to take a step back today and work through first Corinthians 11, a really popular passage as it deals with communion to make sure that we're all, um, like we, we've got some biblical eyes and, and a gospel lens that we're looking at um, when we do this. So first Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, goes like this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, I want you to maybe circle this word or underline this, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this after you uh, drink it in remembrance of me. So I want to lift up just two um, key kind of words or thoughts in this passage that help kind of give us a, a, maybe a framework to look at communion, Lord's Supper, that, that whole thing in. And the first one is remembrance. I think this is kind of a first key kind of a thought from this passage is, is Jesus um, is telling us through Paul to remember 
that there is something to remember when it comes to communion. Okay, now with that, I think it's important that we see that memory and this gift to be able to, to have a memory is something that's, one, unique to human beings in the sense that you can file it away, bring it back up when you want it, relive it how you, I, you can do all of that. Like that memory is a mercy from God for you. You know that? That, that the, like, God has given you a precious gift called your memory and that is a mercy from God for you. Okay, and I hope that's starting to settle, settle over you. That that is a gift from God for you that, you, that you can have actually this memory that can pull things from the past and bring those to the present, right? And now, I, I think this is interesting. When you think of the Old Testament, as you just start reading the Old Testament, you're going to see um, times periodically, and, and they're often throughout the Old Testament, that God is going to look at the people of Israel and say, I want you to mark this moment and to remember it. Like, I, I want you to remember it in such a way that it stays fresh in your mind and in future generations' mind. I think one of the clearest examples of this is in Exodus 13 with the Passover. So th- this kind of commemorates all that God did to bust the people of Israel out of Egypt. And with that, he set up a yearly meal that, that families would do together. That you have families in a house eating a meal. Now picture the scene. Picture a father with his family and one of the kids is like, okay, seriously, we eat the same thing on this day every year. What are we doing? Now, now picture this moment for a father to be able to say, um, let me tell you why we do this every year. It is so it will stay fresh in my mind and in your mind, all these great past acts of God for our people. So, so we eat this so we can talk about over the dinner table, these great plagues that God rained down on the people of Israel that forced our freedom. We eat this so we can talk about our great granddads walked through the Red Sea on dry land. We eat this because in, in the desert, in the wilderness, when, when our people were literally starving to death, God sent manna every morning. It, it's bread that rained. Sent it every morning for them. So, so we eat this so that we as a people, us as a family, me as a father, you as a son or daughter, so that we'll stay refreshed in this. And, and this will be on the, the, the frontal part of our mind continually so that this, this memory, this huge marker in our life will stay fresh for us. So you've got this command throughout the Old Testament. Okay, now I want you to fast forward that a couple of thousand years and think of it in this, this way now. You've got a church family gathered around the table about to eat bread and juice and someone asks, why in the world are we doing that? Like, what do we do? I mean, this is a little bit weird, right? We come to church to eat. I mean, this is how this works, right? And so now, now picture how a response might go to that. And I want you to look at verse 26 as maybe an answer to how you would respond to that. Why do we do this? Why do we gather around the table as a church family? Like, what are we doing here? Verse 26 goes like this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the the reason we gather around the table as a church family is because there is gospel proclamation that happens around the table. When you pick up the bread and when you dip it in the juice and and when you've got the broken body of Jesus and his blood spilled for you being displayed in all that, there is gospel proclamation that's happening. Like when we gather around the table as a church family, we are getting to to proclaim and lift up and and tell people the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and 
lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. That the good news that, that Jesus died an undeserving death in place of your deserved death. The good news of the gospel that Jesus w- w- died for you, that he was buried, that he was arisen on the third day, showing his power over sin, death, and Satan. It's the good news of the gospel that we get to proclaim in all this, that all of those who respond to Jesus in faith are justified. The penalty of their sin is paid for. That that all those who respond to Jesus in faith are redeemed. They are purchased from the master of sin. That that all those who respond to Jesus in faith are adopted. They are brought into the family of God and all of God's blessings, all of his resources, all of his riches are, are poured out and lavished upon them. See, this is what we get to do today. We get to remind one another. This is gospel proclamation. The reason we gather is so this will stay fresh in your mind and in my mind. All that God has done for us in Jesus. It's a way of saying, Romans 3, 23 and 24, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a way of reminding one another of Romans 5, 1. That we have been justified through faith, so we have peace with God. It's a, it's a way of reminding one another of a Romans 8 one, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, it's a way of reminding one another of this, that, that as Romans 8 says, there is nothing that shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. That, that there's no way something can get in between us and Jesus because of all that God has done for us. It's a way of reminding each other of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, he's perfect, to be sin for you, that so that in him you can become the righteousness of God. It's a way of reminding one another that all of our ugliness was stacked onto Jesus and all of his perfection was stacked onto us. It's a way of reminding one another of Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people don't make movements toward God. Dead people don't want God. Dead people don't have a desire for God. Dead people don't just wake up one day and think, you know what, I... I want God to do that. They don't do that. Dead people are dead. They're spiritually unresponsive. But here's the good news of verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? So we get a chance to remind one another of this, to keep this fresh in our memory. Our biggest problem in the room is that we forget all that God has done for us. All of our problems, Second Peter 1 says, is related to we have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our sins, right? And so this is just a beautiful moment where we get together around the table as fathers and mothers and sons and daughters to remind one another of all that God has done for us in Jesus. So there's remembrance at stake here, but, but there's more. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. This is going to kind of introduce us to the next uh, idea here. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you might maybe underline that word, unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So here's what he's saying just right off the cup in verse 27, that there is a right and a wrong way to to take communion together around the table. That there is a way you do that that's biblical and there's a way that you do that that is unbiblical. And biblical versus unbiblical is not, um, do you have like real bread or wafers? Um, Do you dip the bread in the juice, do them both separate? That's not what's at stake here. That's not unworthy or the opposite. What, what makes it unworthy um, to, to, or to do this in an unworthy manner is an issue of the heart. It's an inner issue. Now look at verse 28. He's going to explain this. Verse 28. 
So if you want to keep from doing it in an unworthy manner, verse 28, let a person examine himself. Examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the Bible's going to lay a real seriousness over this that you can actually gather around the table and it be a really damaging and hurtful thing for you and your life. Like if you read verse 30, it's going to even go um, far enough to say that some of you are ill and some of you are weak and some of you have even died because you have done this wrongly. I would say that's pretty serious, Right? So, so, I mean, he, he lays a real weight over this. But, but here's the good part of this. And, and the good side of this is that you can do this in such a way this morning that is a great benefit for your soul, for your heart, and for your life. That, that, that can happen. This morning can be a great encouragement for you, a, a spiritual marker for you that God, God does really good things in your heart. There can be that on the other end of this. And this kind of introduces us to the second idea. When we think of examining yourself, really what, what Paul is getting at here is repentance. That, that you are repentant before God. Okay, now, now when you think of the word repentance, I would say there's a lot of cultural confusion along with this word. Like when most people think repentance, I, I think that the idea they get of is like, picture you're in the kitchen, you can't get a hand in the cookie jar, but your hand's in the cookie jar and your mom walks in. Like I think most people think repentance is Mom, I'm sorry for that. And really what you're saying is, I'm sorry for getting caught, but I still want the cookie, right? That's what you're saying in that moment. And so most people have this idea of repentance that equals, I feel shame, I feel embarrassment, I got caught, oh no, the consequences could be bad here. But that is not what repentance is. That could lead to repentance, but that's not repentance. Repentance is a change of mind about God, about sin, and about your life in relationship to both of those things. Repentance is realizing who God is, how how much our sin offends God and grieves the heart of God. And and it it makes for and it produces a, a different life, like a difference in now how we're relating to God and how we're relating to this sin. Like this is what repentance is and does. Okay, now I want to show you one of my favorite pictures of repentance out of um, Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you want to flip there real quick, Nehemiah chapter 9. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, I think you see two parts of maybe two marks of what repentance always has in it. There's more to be said about repentance than what this passage will say. But, but this is going to say two things that are always said about repentance. Nehemiah chapter 9. Okay, verse 1 um, of that chapter starts like this. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. Okay, now sackcloth, um, th- that would be like some sort of like a coarse goat hair or camel hair. Itchy, nasty. It's not attractive looking. You wouldn't wear sackcloth to church this morning, right? It's not that sort of a dress. Okay, th- then he's going to go on to say, so they, with fasting in a sackcloth and with earth or dust on their heads. Okay, so you've got the people of Israel that they have responded to God in such a way that they're demonstrating it with their dress. Okay, so let me, let me give you kind of the background here of what, what's happening. The people of God in the Old Testament were rebellious against God long enough where God disciplined them by sending them into exile. He um, rose up foreign armies. They came in, destroyed the people of Israel and brought the people of Israel out of their land into a different land. Okay, so they are away from home in exile and all of a sudden in just a a moment of mercy, God starts to move some of the people of Israel back into their land. 
And part of that first group is going to be Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah, he went to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So by the end of chapter 6, you've got the walls that are erected and we're good to go on the walls. And then Ezra is there to rebuild the faith of the people of Israel. He, he's the priest. And so he is there in an attempt to, to rebuild the spiritual vitality of the people of Israel. And so when you get to chapter 8, he is reading the word of God. And he's explaining it and revival breaks out amongst the people of God in Jerusalem. And when you think about revival, revival is repentance that has gone mainstream. Re revival is the result of a neighborhood, entire family, entire communities repenting. When repentance goes mainstream in a place, that's when you have revival. And so you have revival that breaks out in chapter 8. And then when you get to chapter 9, you've got repentance taking place. And here's the first thing you see. They're in this sackcloth. They've got dust on their head. And here's what they're saying. They're posturing themselves before God in humility and brokenness. They're saying, look at what we're wearing. Do you see that? That's how we feel on the inside. See, see what you see is how we feel. You see dust on our head? That, that, that dust is what we feel like internally. That we realize internally that we are far from what we could be or should be. So we are broken for that. We are approaching God with, with an external display and an internal display of, of humility. Okay, now look at the next verse here, and I want you to, to mark this word. This is always going to be attached to, to repentance. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood, and then it says this, and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Repentance is always coupled with confession. You'll never have repentance in your life until you're ready to confess those things that you need to repent of. See, see part of repentance is always the Holy Spirit bringing a specific sin or sins to your awareness and you having the humility to bring those to the surface of your life, to confess those before God and before people. This is always a part of what repentance is. Confessing your sin, approaching God with humility and saying, God, this is my sin. Approaching the community in humility and saying, people, this is my sin. And I, I want, uh, maybe just mark one thing on, on the end of this too, that, that you don't see like a but end the, you know, their, their confession. You, you don't see them say, okay, here are my sins and the sins of our fathers, but, and, and then try to justify it. Again, I think this is how confession so often goes for us. That, that God points to a sin in our, in our heart. And, and so let's just say that, that we, in a moment of rage, dress somebody up and down with our words. I mean, we just blew up on them. And, and so our repentance looks like this so often. Um, God, I know that was wrong. I know I invented like new cuss words in the midst of that. But God, you know anybody else would have killed that man. But God, you know how difficult they are. But God, you, you know this person is crazy. God, you know what they did. See, we like to follow it with that but. And here, here's, if your confession has a but associated with it, here's what that means for you. It means that you have still not owned your sin. See, difficult people and difficult situations are not the cause of your sin. They're just the occasion of it. 
They're just what brings your heart to life. Difficult people and difficult situations are just showing you what lies inside of you. So as long as we've got a but that's at the end of our confession, it still shows us that we're trying to shift the blame. That we're trying to say, God, I know, you know, but you know that. Instead of saying, God, I own this. And this is what I love about their confession. It is, God, we are confessing our sins and our father's sins. And our sin is not because other people had pagan altars. Our sin is not because of other people. Our sin is because of us. So is, is that the way you confess, right? I mean, do you, do you own it in that way? Where it's not their fault, our, you know, our, it's, it's God, this is my deal. This is my sin. And I want you to see verse three, and let me point out one thing with it too. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse three. It says, and they, so just remember that word, mark that word, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they, same, same plural word, they, the group of people, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. And by the way, that's a long worship service, right? And so, but I, I want to just point out that twice it says they. And, and so when you think of confession, I want to make sure that you've got a picture of that that is communal and not just individual. So I think what most of us think when we think confessing sin is, let me lock myself up into a closet. Let me get like privatized, individual, me before God, and let me um, confess my sin before God. And it is that, but it's more than that. See, when they were confessing, it's not just an individual thing. It is a communal issue. It's not just, here is my sin, God, it is, here is my sin, people of Israel. Here is our sin. And so I want to make sure you've got a view of confession that has trusted people around you that you confess your sin to. And and I'll just tell you this, if your confession stays privatized and individualized, if that's how you roll with, with how you confess sin before God, chances of you making like significant pro, like progress through and in and, and around that sin is very unlikely. That God has given you a community of people to pray over and for you that is beneficial for you. And so there is a there is a private, but there's also a communal piece of confession. Okay, now there's another mark, though, that I, I want to make sure you see, too. And it's going to be at the end of the chapter, verse 39, look, or 38. Look down at the very last verse of chapter 9. So they were confessing their sin. That's part of repentance. But here's the other part of repentance. It says, because, because of all this, in verse 38, because of all this, so, so what had happened? Ezra had been reading the word, the Holy Spirit moves in such a way that people are made aware of their sin, they bring it to the surface, they're confessing their sin. Because of all of this, it says, keep going, we make a firm covenant in writing. So, so you've got part confession and second part covenant. That they made a resolve and they put it in writing that we are going to make a break from these things. That, that we are declaring war on these things. That we are no longer coexisting with these things. That we are no longer kind of bringing these sins into the family and calling them friends. That from now on, we have declared war. We are going to battle. That, that no longer are we and it, we and them, no longer are we together. They are making a covenant, a resolve for a new way of living. And they put it in writing. Like in other words, we want our sons and daughters to know this. We want the people around us to know where our sin is and what we're resolving to do by the grace of God. Like we want people to know all of that. They put it in writing. And I just wonder how many of us maybe today 
need good confession to happen and good covenant to happen that maybe is even in writing where men, your wife can see and know about it. Where, where ladies, your husband can see and know, or your kids can see and know about it. And, and I want to point out this next uh, phrase at the end of verse 38. It says, we make a firm covenant in writing. And then it says this, on the sealed document are the names of, and listen to these, these groups of people, these names, of our princes, of our Levites, and of our priest. Okay, now, now who are those people? They are the leaders of the people of Israel. That they are the people that God has given the, the divine authority to direct and to lead those people. And so I, I want to have just a quick conversation with our men in the room. So, so if you're a man, I want you to look up here at me, especially if you are a married man. Now, now if you're an unmarried man, keep looking at me because this is coming for you, right? But if you're a married man, I, I want you to look at me specifically. That some of you didn't ask for this. Some of you didn't really even sign up for this. But when you got married, God placed on you the burden of leading spiritually your family. That is your role by God. That's your God-given. You, you may not have the skills yet to do that. You may not know how to, the know how to, you may not have a lot of things to do, it, but that is God's, that is God's banner that He has placed over you. And, and he, I, I want to be gentle in saying this, but I just want you to see this. When I think about my family, here is a hope that I have for my kids and my wife, that they would live continually repenting before God, that God would continually make them aware of where they are falling short and where sin is in their life, and that the Holy Spirit would graciously convict them of that, and that they would run to Jesus confessing that and making a covenant for a new way of living, that that would be a continual pattern of their life. Okay, now every man, I want you to, to hear this. If you want that to happen, if you want that displayed in your sons and daughters and in your wife, it needs to be demonstrated by you. So men, let me ask you the question. Do your wives and your son and daughter, do they hear you and do they see you repenting before God and before them? When's the last time they've seen that? When's the last time they've seen daddy really mess up and dad, come before the family and say, this is where I messed up and I own that. And I confess that before you and before God. And dad makes a covenant to live differently. I mean, does that happen in your family? See, if, if we want that displayed in our kids and in our wives, that has got to be demonstrated. I mean, they, they've got to see that done. Like you, you are the person in their life that God has placed there to show them what that looks like, how that looks I mean, you're that person for them. And so I want you to see that in the people of Israel, it started with the princes and the Levites, the, the, the priests, the people in spiritual authority over the people. And so dads, it's got to start with you. Like if you want the movement of God and the spirit of God to, to come into your family in a powerful way, then we need to position ourselves for that by continually repenting in the midst of that. Amen? So, so let me ask you the question this morning. Are you in need of good repentance? Confession of sin? A covenant for a new way of living? And, and here's what I know about almost all of us in the room, that it is easier to avoid all of that than to deal with it, isn't it? 
I mean, literally, here's what I think happens a lot of times in this moment. I think a lot of times in our hearts, we start thinking like this, although we'd never verbalize it. If I can just hold on for like another 15 minutes, I will not have to think about this again for another week, right? We will be at Chili's and the the world will be good, right? And and so I I just want to encourage you, like, what is it that keeps you from from repenting? And in a moment like this, I think pride is your worst enemy, when we confess our sin, here's what we're acknowledging. That, that God, we are wrong. Family of God, we are wrong. And we're covenanting to make a new, new way here by the grace of God. See, it takes humility. It takes a posture of, I don't care what you think. I care what Jesus thinks. It takes a posture of humility to go there. It takes a posture of humility and brokenness to deal with sin right now in your life as opposed to just avoiding it and pushing it off. We can deal with that tomorrow. Well, really, maybe you can, maybe you can't deal with it tomorrow. And I, I want you to see, I, I'm just going to read this out of the first five verses out of Psalms 32. And I want to show you, I just want to let you hear what happens when we choose to stuff our sin rather than run to God and repent of this. Okay, so I just, just listen to this, Psalms 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed. That could also be translated happy, joyful, fortunate is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and sins are covered. Verse two, blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose whose spirit there is no deceit. But blessed is this man who there's nothing to hide here. Like everything's out on the table. I mean, he's not trying to like hide this secret stuff over here. He's got no secrets in his life. Everything is confessed. Everything is, is being taken to God and everything is being coveted to work away from. Like blessed is that man. Fortunate is that man. I notice the contrast in verse three. Just listen to this contrast. Blessed is that man. And then here you've got a different man. For when I kept silent, in other words, when I stuffed it, when I chose to avoid it, when I chose to like, White knuckle it, let's get to Chili's, stop thinking about this. When I chose to do that, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You see the imagery there? My bones were groaning. They were wasting away. For day and night, your, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see the contrast? You've got one, it is blessed, it is joyful. It is fortunate. And then you've got one, their bones are wasting away. They're groaning all day night. The, the, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon them. It is as if they are running a marathon in a hundred degree heat. It is if they have got a hundred pound weight tied to their ankle and everywhere they go, they're trying to drag this with them. So, so let me ask you, which one of those two lives characterize you? And, and then it says this, Selah. And that means stop and think, pause. We just close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes just for a second. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Sins are covered. But then you've got this other man, this other woman, running from God, stuffing sin, bones wasting away, weary, drying up. The hand of the Lord is heavy upon them. See, here's what I know about a room like this. Some of us in here, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon you because he loves you. Because in his tender violence, he's not gonna let you get away with these things. So his hand is heavy upon you to lead you to repentance. Selah, stop and think about that. Blessed is this man 
Weary is the other. Okay, you can look up. Verse five finishes like this. The psalmist realizes it. So this is what the psalmist does. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. May it be for you today. Here's the beautiful thing about where we are on this side of the cross. Here's what we know. In our sin, we do not have to run from God. We can run to God because Jesus has covered all of our sin. Isn't that a beautiful thought to know and to drive deep down into your soul? Okay, Galatians 5 is where we're going to end. If you want to flip there, you can. It'll be on the screen for you as well. And I apologize, I have the wrong translation that I copied into my notes, so um, this is going to be interesting. So Galatians chapter 5 is where we are. We're going to finish with this today. Galatians 5. Sometimes I'll use Galatians 5 um, when I want the Holy Spirit to make sure I'm aware of sin when I want to invite the Holy Spirit to examine my heart and my life, sometimes I'll read um, Galatians 5 and ask him to do that. And and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do that for you today, that as we read this list of the sins of the flesh, that the Holy Spirit would begin to bring to the surface sins that you haven't seen yet. Sins that are happening right now, but maybe in this moment we're too self-righteous and prideful to even see them as sin. So so may the Holy Spirit do that for you. So Galatians chapter five, I'm actually gonna be reading from the NIV. You've got the ESV. We'll see if we can make this work. Okay, Galatians five, starting in verse 16 says this. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Verse 17, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict at war with each other so that they do not do what they want to, so that you do not do what you want to do. Okay, now I want you to to just make sure this picture is, is clear in your mind. When you become a Christian, you do not become perfect. Do you know that? Just ask your wife or your husband if you need clarification on that, right? And so when you became a Christian, you did not become perfect. What happened when you became a Christian, if you view your heart as a territory, what happened is you had an old, sinful, reigning master over your territory, over your heart. And when you got saved, when the Holy Spirit saved you, that old, sinful master was dethroned in you, and a new, reigning master took took control of your heart, Jesus. So now you have a new master in your heart, a new controller in your heart, a a person that, that, that is the new prince of your heart. But that old sinful nature that was dethroned was not destroyed. It it wages, it it kind of retreats into the jungle of your heart and wages a guerrilla warfare, doing everything it can to assault the new prince in your heart. See, this is what happens when we become a Christian. This is the war that's being illustrated here between that old man that's been dethroned but not destroyed and this new reigning master, Jesus, in your heart. Okay, now look at the next uh, section here, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Anyway, the Holy Spirit used this for you right now. Sexual immorality, an act of the old man, that, that dethroned but not destroyed foe in your heart. This is him. Sexual immorality, the work of the flesh. And sexual immorality is kind of a junk drawer to to encompass all sorts of sexual stuff. So it could be, like these are different categories in the Bible. You've got things like um, fornication, where that is going to be having sex with somebody that's not your wife. Taking parts of them, but not taking all of them. And, and if you're a lady in here and that that's happening, like outside of marriage, I just want to maybe 
maybe encourage you to think about this, that that is a man that's willing to take parts of you while he withholds giving all of himself to you. Right? And, and so this is fornication, that's sexual immorality. And, and maybe you could come down underneath, underneath that and we, we could talk pornography. 25% or more of all web searches deal with pornographic material now. So I know that in any room like this, the, the, the access is so easy now that it is an issue for people in a room like this. And that's the work of the flesh. And we could talk about lust, what happens in, in, with your eyes and what happens in your mind and in your heart. That, that's all sexual immorality. And l- let me just say this in passing too. Affairs never happen overnight. Adultery never happens overnight. They happen because small seeds begin to grow in our life that we are okay with allowing them to be there. We know they're there, but we are okay because it's a small seed. And those seeds are what grow into affairs and adultery. Are we tracking with that? And so so some of us in here today, we have got small seeds working with secretaries, with neighbors, with friends, with coworkers, that that if we're not careful, those are going to grow to be huge plants. That's where those things go, right? And so maybe it would be an act of grace today for you to see that in such a way that you're disgusted by it and not um, kind of willing to coexist with it. And maybe today would be a day that you can close the door on that. Make a covenant to walk away from those things. To confess those things and, and to run from those things. Sexual immorality. But he, he's got a lot more here. Impurity. Th- this would be the attitude behind the action of sexual immorality. This is what's happening in your heart. This is what's happening in your mind in the midst of sexual immorality. And, and then the next word, um, if you've got an ESV, it says sensuality. If you've got an NIV, it says debauchery. And debauchery is probably not a word you use in common day, kind of your normal vocabulary. But here's what it means. It, it's this idea that you have gone so far into something that you've just thrown up your hands and said, I'm done. I, it's almost what, what Dan talked about last week where we get this kind of mentality working with temptation. Like I've already fallen to it once today, so why not just go varsity with it, right? I mean, why not just go all the way headlong and, and we'll just make a day of it? Okay, that's debauchery. It, it's, it's, it's when you're so beat down by a sin or by like a, a group of sins in your life in this f- particular form of unbelief in your heart that, that rather than fighting it and waging war against it, you've just grown weary. So you've sat on the couch, gotten in the fetal position and just said, I give up. So maybe this would be a great morning for you in that area where you're on the couch in the fetal position to say, God, by your grace, will you help me get up off the couch, confess this sin? and to make a covenant against it. Debauchery. And then we'll go on here. Um, next one is idolatry. And just to make sure you're not thinking idolatry equals something that happens like in a pagan country, um, d- just so you see that, that idolatry is here. Let me read you this definition. Um, this is from Tim Keller. He says, An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. So you, you know you've got an idol if you're willing to sin to get it. And can I just encourage you on this? Idols will always break your heart always. And most oftentimes for most of us in the room, idols are good things, not bad things. So idols can be things like marriage, things like your health, things like hobbies, things like recreation, things like education and entertainment, things like houses, things like money. 
all of those can, can be idols. So, so maybe I could just ask it this way. Is there anything in your life that has shoved God out of the place of central kind of importance? Anything in your life that has moved God out of the place of priority for you? Idolatry. And then he goes on, he says, um, witchcraft or sorcery in the ESV or hatred or enmity. And, and hatred is this idea that you want the absolute worst for someone else. Do you have that person that when you, like if somebody like in your relational circle mentioned their name, that you instantly start seeing red? Like your temperature just starts to boil? That's what you call hatred. And, and this is what P, uh, Paul is saying is a work of the flesh. So, I mean, do you, do you have that person? And, and then he goes on, he says, um, discord or strife. Um, discord or strife is hatred, the emotion of hatred, when, when it has legs, when it starts to work out horizontally in your life. Strife is, is when you go to war with somebody. Are you at war with anybody right now? I mean, is there anybody in your life that, that the battle lines have been drawn, they're on that side, you're on this side, and you're hoping you have a bigger gun than they do? Anybody right now that that would maybe characterize you? I think it's interesting in Matthew 5, um, Jesus says that, that if you have your gift and you're going to the altar and you realize your brother has something against you or vice versa, then you drop the gift right there. You go reconcile with your brother and, and then you come back and offer the gift. And, and maybe before we gather around the table today, maybe you need to make a phone call before you do that. Maybe you need to step outside and, and make a phone call to somebody um, that would be a first step towards reconciliation before you bring your gifts to the altar, right? Okay, he, he goes on here. He says, um, jealousy. And jealousy is more than I wish I had that. Like the darkest side of jealousy goes like this. I am just hacked off that they have it. I don't even want it. I'm just mad that God gave it to them. The way they look, the things they have. I just don't like that God gave it to them. Does jealousy, does that, does that work anywhere in your heart? He goes on, fits of rage. Fits of rage are when anger detonates in your life. And you just blow up on someone. The, the fits of rage, does that characterize you? See, this is a work of the flesh. That is not from the spirit. Even if you've got a just cause, fits of rage are not of the spirit. So does that, does that characterize you? Has anger detonated any time recently? Next one, he says, um, rivalries. The NIV says selfish ambition. And, and let me just clarify on ambition. Ambition is a good and a God-given thing. But here's what makes it a very ugly thing when that word selfish is in front of it. So, so let me ask you this. What are your ambitions with your finances right now? I mean, what are your ambitions with them? With your finance, with your house? What are your ambitions with your um, kids? With, with your job, your career? What, what is your ambitions in life right now? Let me ask you this question. What is in front of those ambitions? Is it selfish or is it God-centered, others-oriented? Like what drives your ambitions? See, when selfish is in front of ambition, it's always from the flesh. It's never from the spirit. Okay, he goes on here. Dissensions and factions. In your relational circles, do you act like glue in those circles or do you act like a nuclear bomb that just explodes periodically? See, do you create factions and divisions or do you create like this glue that bonds people together? He goes on, envy. Do you have any petty disagreements with people? Drunkenness. Um, there's this gaping hole in your life that you fill with alcohol to the point that you get drunk with it. And then he goes on orgies. And then he has this kind of catch-all category. He says, and the like. And and the like is just to show you that there's a lot of other things he could have said. He could have said, are you apathetic toward God? 
That's a work of the flesh. He could have said, men, are you, are you leading your family as you should be? If not, that's a work of the flesh. He could have said, ladies, are you promoting your man leading? Are you praying for him to lead? Are you encouraging him to lead? Are you inviting him to lead your family? If not, that's a work of the flesh. He could have said greed. If you're not content right now, that's a work of the flesh. I mean, he could have gone all day long, right? And and so I want to ask you, like, what is it in you that needs to be confessed of, that needs to be repented of? I I love James 5, um, 16, where it talks about if we um, confess our sins one to another and pray for one another, that we'll be healed. For the prayer of a righteous man or woman, um, it accomplishes much. And, and maybe today you, you need to stop and you need to confess that sin to God. Maybe it's to a wife, maybe it's to a friend in the room. And you need to ask them to pray for you. Like, can I just urge you uh, on this? Do not sit silently. Uh, uh, this has probably been three or four years ago. I read this story of a, of a small boy in Florida. And uh, he was playing in his backyard. He's got like this drainage ditch that um, kind of turns into a creek when you've got a lot of rain. And so he's playing near that drainage ditch and an alligator latches onto his leg and is literally dragging like this six or seven year old boy into this drainage ditch to his death. And he screams at the top of his lungs. And two houses down, his his uh, uncle hears the scream of his nephew, looks outside, sees what's going on, makes a beeline for the, for the drainage ditch, and literally kind of gets into this wrestling match between this alligator and him for his nephew. And he, finally, he, he wrestles his nephew away. Story ends good. The world's happy, right? But, but I think there's this imagery there with that, that for a lot of us, we've got this alligator of sin latched to our leg. We're being drugged into the drainage ditch. And I think a lot of our strategy is, I will sit quietly and make sure no one knows about it. So maybe this is a morning for you that you can scream at the top of your lungs, help. And maybe you'd have good community come around you, pray for you, and you would get to watch the prayers of righteous men and women um, accomplish much in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit to um, to bring to awareness those things in you right now that need to be confessed and that you need to make a covenant to walk in a different direction. We just ask God to do that for you. And to our married folk in the room, if your marriage is not great, I mean, if it's not great, if there are things that need to be worked on and worked through, I mean, if that's, if that's your marriage, which probably is, is all of us in the room here, will you ask God what it is in you that needs to change? Like what God needs to do in you to move your marriage forward? And listen, this is not a your spouse thing. This is a you thing. Like what is it that God needs to do in you? I mean, we, we could talk for days here, but like, what, what, what is it that, that this morning God starts to raise to your awareness that, that needs to be confessed? Greed, immorality. I mean, whatever those things are, can I just encourage you not to sit silent, to confess those things before God. If you've got friends around you, before you come to the table today, for you to make sure they know about that, maybe it would be good for you to sit and to write those things down before you gather around the table. Maybe it would be good for you um, to confess to your wife before you gather at the table.
to confess to your husband, to your mom or to your dad. And so we'll end it like this. We'll give you some time to, to deal with the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to deal with you. And then when you feel like you're to a point and, and you're ready to uh, um, come up and uh, gather around the table and do communion, you can come up, you and your family, and dip the bread in the juice and uh, eat it there. And, and that's communion for you this morning. So let me pray for you and then we'll uh, invite the band to play for us and um, to lead us in that. God, we love you. And God, I thank you for this church family. I thank you for the privilege of being able to preach to them. And God, I pray that, that today, um, that your Holy Spirit would be very gracious to us. God, that you would gift this room with repentance today. God, that you would make us aware of sin in us, for the self-righteous in here, that you would break our heart, for the humble that you would encourage. And God, we thank you for the cross that, that allows us in our sin to run to you because Jesus has covered it. And, and so, God, for those that are in here today that are still on the fringes, they have not trusted and treasured you, God, I pray that this would be a moment where they get to see Jesus, all that you do for us, that you have broken your body, Jesus, for us on the cross, that you have spilled your blood on the cross for us so that our sin could be dealt with, so we could be brought into a right relationship with God, so that we could be reconciled to God. And God, this would be a day that they trust and treasure you, that they hold up their life and surrender it to you and that you save them, that, that you adopt them into the family. And so God, I pray that you would do all of those things and more today. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.